0: Welcome to Brown Bag Green Book. I am L. Laura Williams, president of the Friends of the Library. And our speaker today is a friend of mine. His name is David Massey, neighborhood coordinator for the city of Knoxville. He will be discussing the book Bringing Buildings Back from Abandoned Properties to Community Assets by Alan Mallet. Let's give Mr. Massey a big round of applause and thank you. Thank you. Um, I especially want to thank uh, both Elnora and Emily and the library for this series. It's really amazing. Emily was just telling me it's now been going on for two to two and a half years, and it's obviously been a very successful program and drawn a lot of interest across a lot of different disciplines. If you're a regular here, you've heard mainly about sustainability in terms of energy or sustainability in terms of our natural environment. This uh, really is about the sustainability of our built environment. Uh, So it's a little bit different from uh, what you've uh, been normally uh, hearing at these uh, sessions. I'm really honored to be doing this. I kind of volunteered, Emily let me volunteer to do this book, partly because um, I'm really interested in seeing more people outside city government involved in helping meet the challenges posed by abandoned, blighted, and vacant properties. Dealing with those properties is really a very, very complex subject. It involves finance, economics, regulations, uh, marketing, real estate, design, construction, eminent domain, uh, the law, if I haven't mentioned that, uh, community development, neighborhood revitalization, And it really um, has uh, a level of complexity to it, which really um, led to the creation of building, bringing buildings back. There are people in the room who have much more expertise on this than I do. I do want to recognize two members of city council. Mayor Brown just walked in and Finbar Saunders here. Thank you for coming. And then we have city staff, Bill Lyons, Bob Wetzel, uh, Becky Wade, Cindy McGinnis, Patricia Robledo, and Don Michelle Foster, I apologize, and Jocelyn, and and, and Jake. Okay, thank you. Um, Why am I doing this? I'm involved in anti-blight issues for the city on two counts. One is, as the neighborhood coordinator, it's my responsibility to respond to, to, to basically kind of organize uh, interdepartmental responses to issues of neighborhood concern. Blighted property is probably the number one issue that comes to our attention. Uh, aside from crime and traffic issues, uh, bl- blight is clearly the number one issue affecting neighborhoods. And as Alan Malik points out in the book, um, organized neighborhoods are really a key factor in the whole complex response to this complex issue. Um, I'm also privileged to co-chair with Grant Rosenberg, the director of community development for the county, an intergovernmental vacant properties committee that um, Mayor O'Hara formed when she was community development director uh, back in 09, and that is, uh, although we have had departments working together on specific blighted property issues, until 09 We had never gotten together as departments and certainly across governments and KCDC to talk about overall policy with regard to blighted property, at least not on a regular basis. And so that's what that committee does. Let me just ask, how many people have read the book? Well, you've missed a real page turner, let me tell you. Uh, So uh, how many people in here live in a neighborhood where there is a blighted property? Okay, so you yourselves are already experts in this issue just by the experience you've had uh, dealing with it. Alan is, in his late 60s, he's an urban planner and practitioner. He started off in New Jersey um, as the research director for the New Jersey County and Municipal Government Study Commission, which I take is pretty much like our MTAS and CTAS, Municipal and County Technical Advisory Service at UT. He worked for a number of city governments. He's now a non-resident senior fellow at Metropolitan Planning Program of Brookings Institution, a visiting scholar at Federal Reserve Bank at Philadelphia, fellow and former research director at the National Housing Institute, and a fellow at the Center for Community Progress. Um, it's the predecessor of Center for Community Progress, the uh, Genesee Institute, which was here in 09, helping look at our uh, blighted property uh, programs, providing some um, uh, some recommendations. Their mission basically is to create vibrant communities, primarily through the reuse of abandoned, blighted, and vacant property. Their kind of marketing phrase is, turning vacant spaces into vibrant places. They sponsor a conference every 18 months or so called Reclaiming Vacant Properties, which is how we got into this field in terms of a policy approach. Their fourth conference is coming up in New Orleans in June. If you're interested in this subject, I'd encourage you to get online, just Google Center for Community Progress. Um, you can find out about the conference there. It is really an excellent detail-filled Gathering of people across the country who are involved in this issue. Um, we've been fortunate to have been selected as a, uh, both as the community of Knoxville, Knox County, as well as the state of Tennessee to, to benefit from some leadership training that they've provided and also to have their expertise come in and assist with specific issues. Last December, we met with our fellow and uh, sister cities in Memphis, Nashville and Chattanooga in uh, Nashville to start laying the groundwork for tax foreclosure reform, which was one of the primary recommendations that Center for Community Progress uh, made to us in 2009. So the book... Bringing Buildings Back. You will see it as a brown cover. I think it's a brown cover on the poster. That was the first edition in 06. This is the a second edition published in uh, 2010. It's available in the library. It's available from the National Housing Institute. It's an expensive book. It's $29.95. You can get it for less than that on Amazon. Uh, and you can get it for free at the library. It's. Uh, I, I was... Um, Reading with my wife the other day, and she's reading some mystery series that's about this female detective or two female detectives, and it's just hilarious. And she bursts out laughing every once in a while, and I burst out laughing and read her a passage out of this book. It that didn't go over very well. Um, so, I mean, this is it is not a page turner. But it is a very practical book. He calls it a guide. It's a policy manual. It's a strategy map. That's how I think of it. It, it is uh, absolutely thorough and comprehensive. When you look at and start getting into the details of dealing with abandoned, blooded, and vacant property, it's like touching an elephant in a, in a, in a dark room. You really have no idea what you're, what part you're looking at, feeling. And this book really helps back up a little bit to understand the big picture as well as the details. It's indexed. It's got a bibliography. It's got four illustrations lining out decision trees on various things like what to do about surplus property. 21 chapters divided into the three main sections with a list of city-by-city city resources at the end of each section. 36 tables, 106 uh, sidebar anecdotes of good practices, uh, examples of how cities around the country have dealt with these issues, and, and a total of 373 pages. It, the neat thing about this book is you can really start it at any point. You can delve into a chapter that uh, that is particularly of interest to you and not have to read the whole book. So it's not just a best practices list. It's a It's a technical guide. It's really his aim is to encourage creative thinking, thinking outside the box. He doesn't attempt to answer questions at a local le- level. He attempts to uh, basically help address the principles and the, the concerns that we ought to have as we approach any particular blighted property issue. I just want to say a little bit about definitions Some of us doing this, and people in the general public will use uh, vacant, blighted, and abandoned sort of interchangeably, and they're not necessarily interchangeable. A vacant property can be an unused structure or a vacant lot, but it doesn't have to be blighted. Uh, In our current economy, you can go anywhere in town and see a vacant storefront that's well-kept. A vacation house that's that's empty in December is not a blighted property, although it might be vacant at the time. Of course, we focus mainly on, on vacant properties that are blighted or have been abandoned by the owner. Blighted property in our city and uh, our ordinance has very specific definitions. A blighted property violates city building codes, attractive nuisance to children, declared unfit for human habitation, a fire hazard, disconnected from utilities, etc. So then those definitions generally apply across the country in terms of what is a blighted property. Tax delinquent for three years, that's another one that we that we have uh, in our ordinance. An abandoned property, which is primarily what Alan does in his book, is to talk about abandoned properties. That is a property where the owner can't be located, and believe me, we have a lot of those, where an owner has died without a will, or their heirs are scattered to the four winds, and we have a lot of those. The owner has ceased to maintain or invest in the property, has ceased paying property taxes, and those things can be true, even though there are renters in the property and and the owner is still collecting rent. So you can abandon a property by abandoning your stewardship of that property, where it can lead to blight and lead to a disinvestment in the neighborhood. There is a strong correlation between abandonment and blight. There is a strong correlation between, for example, properties that are three years or more tax delinquent are also very likely to be blighted and the subject of codes enforcement actions. What Malik does in this book is to divide the book into three areas, and uh, he he looks at it uh, in three broad categories. Preventing abandonment, taking control of abandoned properties, and uh, then reuse and development. When he talks about preventing abandonment, he very early on addresses the issue of why is that important. And if this doesn't depress you too much. The presence of abandoned properties, particularly in large numbers, undermines the well-being of the community and affects how it is perceived by both residents and outsiders. Just think of the blighted property that you said you knew about in your own neighborhood. The sight of abandoned properties, whether boarded row houses or the shells of old industrial buildings affects the morale of nearby residents fostering social isolation discouraging community engagement and breaking down the community's social controls when abandoned properties constitute as little as three to five percent of the buildings in a neighborhood abandonment may begin to feed on itself as property owners see the abandoned properties in their midst as harbingers of further neighborhood decline in fact there is some evidence uh, around the country, studies have been done that show that property values can drop as much as 20, 25, even 30 percent when there's a single abandoned or blighted, severely blighted property on the block. And if you think about it, you go to sell your house and there's a blighted property across the street, people are going to keep moving on, uh, looking for another place, and that affects the value. So in the preventing abandonment section, he talks about codes enforcement and uh, given limited uh, municipal resources, how to target that codes enforcement, how to manage data so that you know what you've got in terms of uh, codes uh, violations and, and integration with other abandonment prevention strategies. And that's one of the real key things. If there was one word I had to use to sum up this book, it would be context. I mean, everything uh, has a context and every decision has to be made understanding the context of community policy, of what's happening in the rest of the block and the rest of the neighborhood. One of our main problems in Knoxville has has to do with absentee landlords. Uh, Currently, under state law, Knoxville has no ability to automatically inspect rental property. Um, If we're invited in by... Um, a tenant. We can go in and look. If uh, the KPD goes in and finds uh, conditions that warrant uh, codes enforcement, then we can come in at that point. But otherwise, we have no ability to, uh, on a routine basis, investigate rental property. So. For people who've dealt with that over a period of time, some of Malik's suggestions may not sit well. Uh, It's interesting that he says over 50% of all rental housing and some 70% of all private market rental housing that are occupied by low-income households are are actually one to four family properties. So they're not large complexes. They tend to be smaller and that's something we see a lot. We see people who want to get into the landlord business who really don't have a clear picture of even the cash flow issues or, or how to screen tenants and so forth. But one of his points is that a city to be effective in preventing abandonment and moving blighted property back into compliance with uh, local codes, is that you've got to use a carrot and a stick approach. Or you have to use a carrot approach with the stick. He says, a code enforcement program which puts pressure on landlords without offering them financially realistic ways of addressing their building's deficiencies can hasten rather than prevent abandonment. One of the things he points out is a property that's cash flowing is much more likely to be something that can be rehabbed and saved and turned around than a property that isn't. And so um, he's suggesting that strong codes enforcement has to be accompanied by incentives and that's uh, controversial because, you know, it's rewarding slum landlords, but he suggests loan programs for absentee landlords, tax relief, training and technical assistance. The Cleveland Housing Court, and and we've met the, the judge for that, actually has employees who assist uh, not only single-family owners who have run across codes enforcement, but also landlords. So it's just interesting how he takes what we might normally think of as let's just crack down on these scoff laws to say, you know, we really have to figure out a way to that they own the property, we've got to figure out a way to get them over the hump. You know, I mentioned before that we run into properties all the time where people have died without a will and it was interesting to me that he he says that nearly half of all lower income adults over 50 do not have a will. He goes into some other issues. There's also some states uh, have uh, receivership laws that allow local governments to go after commercial rental property that uh, that is not being maintained well and appoint a receiver. That's a a complex subject but certainly a possibility for us down the road. I guess overall he talks about addressing the whole fabric. This book is really very, very neighborhood based and so he talks about uh, looking at the whole fabric of what makes a stable neighborhood versus an unstable neighborhood and this is sort of a negative view but think of it on a positive basis uh, in terms of what constitutes neighborhood integrity A stable neighborhood does not mean that everyone in the neighborhood stays in the same place. People are mobile. Few spend their entire lives in the same town or neighborhood. Neighborhood stability flows from how the residents of the neighborhood as well as those of the larger city and region perceive the neighborhood and how they act on their perceptions. Simply stated, a stable neighborhood is a neighborhood where people feel that their investment is secure. And he goes on to say, people, both those living in the neighborhood and those who might consider buying there, are influenced both by an area's reputation and by a series of visual cues or signals that they pick up as they walk or drive through the area. The visible level of maintenance and cleanliness of an area is just as important as boarded houses, which is pe- perhaps the most powerful signal, dirt-covered front yards with scrappy, uneven fencing, sagging front porches, peeling paint, all those things, trash and vacant alley- and vacant lots, all those things contribute to a perception of uh, instability and value. And so he talks about the importance of keeping properties occupied, keeping homeowners in their homes, keeping properties maintained addressing crime and quality of life issues. And so one of the things he talks about is the importance of neighborhood organizations. I'm a very firm believer in neighborhood organizations, obviously, that's what I do for the city, but neighborhood organizations tend to think of themselves as uh, we're here to fight this commercial encroachment, or we're here to fight crime, and those things are very important. But a neighborhood organization has two other functions. One is to create a reality of community that a lot of us grew up with and that came naturally and that we all, you know, just took for granted. Parents taking care of other parents' children, watching out for each other and so forth. And in an era when there's a lot of distrust and people stay in their homes and don't get outside, a neighborhood organization can serve the function of creating that sense of community, which Malik says is really an important piece of preventing blight and of turning it around. And so he talks a lot about partnerships. Neighborhood residents and neighborhood organizations are an important uh, key partner in addition to government, elected officials, codes enforcement, community development, tax collection, police and fire, uh, housing developers, uh, realtors, schools, media, all of those play a role in creating that sense of of a stable neighborhood. Uh, in the second part, he talks about taking control of abandoned properties. Tax foreclosure reform is one way to take control of abandoned properties. Basically, um, it, 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 there comes a point when the role of city government is to step in and take action when the private market is unwilling or, or, or unable to do so. And in a property rights state, that kind of statement can rub some people the wrong way. The way we are looking at it and the paradigm that we as a community ought to look at it is to protect the property rights of the people living next door to blighted property. When somebody has an abandoned property and there are three or four or five years of taxes due, they're costing the community in at least two ways two or three four ways. One is they're not paying their taxes, so the burden is on everybody else. Two, they're lowering over time the appraised value of all the property around them, and that affects the tax base and the rateability. And the third thing is that it's affecting that ambiance of stability uh, and community that's important in our neighborhood. So tax foreclosure reform uh, is an important aspect of taking control. We're very fortunate in Knoxville in that Something like 94 or 95 percent of Knoxville property owners pay their taxes and pay them on time. But the number that are delayed and delinquent or that we have to go after, even though it's a small percentage, can add up into some real numbers. Malik talks about a lot of different tools for taking control eminent domain is one and we do have that ability here I mentioned the idea that you've got a blighted property on a single block and Malik talks about not only how that single blighted property can start to affect the perceptions of that community and the reality of the the values but to deal with it, it's important to go in after those specific properties and so we have some great tools in this city for dealing with that William? I wanted
1: to ask you a question from really more of a macroeconomic viewpoint. It seems like the overall thrust of our culture these days is the disappearance of the middle class, and with that comes uh, a decline in the single-family housing market.
0: Is he right about this at all? Yes, he does. And I guess in terms of urban planning, I mean, for decades and decades people have talked about blight. I think what Center for Community Progress and Malik have done if, is to address blight and abandonment. It's not just a symptom; it's also a cause, but it is definitely bound up in the social fabric. Uh, he mentions foreclosures and predatory lending, which can, can affect any income class, but mainly lower income or people who really weren't prepared to to be homeowners, uh, and how that you know can lead to abandonment when people um, lose their homes. But another thing he points out is that job creation can be an important component of dealing with abandoned property because people need jobs to be able to afford houses to be homeowners. I mean, I've thought, for example, that the school system's current initiative for more money could be looked at as a way to stabilize inner-city neighborhoods because if you go to any inner, inner city neighborhood, I used to live in 4th and Gill, the key issue there was schools. And people have a perception, real or not, that the schools aren't high quality and so they're going to move out. And overall, you have, hear employers talking about, we've got openings, we don't have qualified applicants. So education, um, as a part of a total community policy, it fits into this. Um, it's not direct but it certainly plays a role. Community development deals with this all the time. We we are constantly uh, running up against uh, social forces that are way beyond our control. So in terms of taking control of abandoned properties, uh, there are other issues. Land banks, you probably hear a lot about land banks. Land banks are a mechanism that are used in some localities around the country to basically take title to property, uh, hold it, maintain it, and turn around and convey it. We have decided locally not to pursue a land bank for the time being. One, we don't have near the number of properties. Our, Our issues are not nearly as overwhelming as they are in some Rust Belt cities where land banks tend to be really needed. And number two, it was actually advice from the Center for Community Progress that we take care of tax foreclosure reform first and see whether that might obviate the need for land bank. He he also talks about getting action on privately owned properties. One thing we've just recently done that you may know about is that the mayor worked with city council to adopt four new uh, anti-blight initiatives, one of which had to do with charging interest and penalties on codes liens, which we've never done. We're now going to do it, and we think that, A, it'll increase our revenue from the codes liens. Uh, we have to mow a lot. We slap a four dollars $500 code lien on that property if the owner doesn't pay the cost of the mowing. Uh, if we have to tear down a house, that's five or $6,000. We place that on the property, but then they sit there, and so there's no incentive for the owner to actually pay it. Now there is, and over time, we may, depending on whether there's a private mortgage or not, we may be able to foreclose on those codes liens. So that would be a way that we would acquire severely blighted property and then be able to turn it around. Gene? Uh, David, I know you've
1: heard of the uh, environmental court that I guess has been in Memphis probably for 20 years. Uh, I understand, lived in Memphis Good chunk of that time, but uh, that very effective in getting uh, corrective action implemented. Right, uh, it's just that the Potter apparently, you know, has been through this enough to he he knows the situation right. in the community and he's he's able to uh, you know uh, get people uh, motivated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm sure the the new nuisance ordinances uh, would help in this regard. But I've never understood why Knoxville doesn't. Uh, have that and use that uh, because it is is so effective in dealing with a, you know, a broad range of problems that the community has. But it's it's kind of a middle ground where there there isn't uh, you know an immediate punitive action that's taken. Opportunity for addressing a grievance is provided, and uh, uh, it, it yes, yeah. it just seems to work.
0: Right. Well, a couple of things about that. One is that the state constitution sets the limit on fines at fifty dollars per violation per day. Um, So that's one of our severe limitations. There have been efforts to amend the constitution to either raise that limit or take it away. Those efforts have failed. Uh, Sometimes there's a majority, but it didn't reach the threshold in terms of previous gubernatorial number election numbers and so forth. So that's one of the problems. The other issue is that Larry Potter in Memphis, whom I've met and is a fantastic guy has been at it for 20 years. He's a General Sessions court judge. The city of Memphis has a special uh, memorandum of agreement with his court to take their uh, environmental cases to his court. We take our environmental and housing and codes cases to city court. I mean, he has the same $50 limit that we do. The difference is that Judge Potter and the General Sessions court can take additional enforcement actions that the city court judge can't take, i.e. they can throw people in jail. If you fail to fix your failing porch and you, you're back in court and you haven't, you haven't done anything about it, then not only are you in violation of the codes, but now you're in contempt of court. He doesn't do it much because the people know he will if he has to. That's the difference. And and because of consolidated government in Nashville, Davidson County, they have the same opportunity to use General Sessions. For us, I'm pretty sure that we would have to go to chancery court to get that. Part of the issue with going to court... And we did make a, a change, uh, actually, uh, Mayor O'Hara, one of her last acts as community development director was to sit down with codes enforcement, our law department, and the city court municipal judge to make one tweak, which is that we can now charge $50 a day times so many days if when they're back in court the second time, uh, it's clear they haven't cured the violation. I mean, that's not going to go a long way, but it's one, one extra step. Martha. How do you address the fact uh, if you've got a, a property and you have the liens for tearing down the house or even just the liens for mowing over the years, and then you add that to there's probably back taxes, and that gets to be more than what the property is worth? Is there any mechanism to deal with that? Well, f- first of all, it's unlawful for the city government to forgive back taxes or penalty or interest more about that in a second Uh, however we impose the liens and we can forgive the liens so under one of the ordinances recently passed by city council it now falls to the director of public service and the law director to forgive a lien and we've got a process where if you are buying a property and there are codes liens on that property you can petition to have those codes liens removed by presenting a a letter and maybe a site plan explaining what your plans are for the property and how those liens are making the property upside down, okay? We can't forgive the taxes, but we can deal with the codes liens, and so that's the other advantage of being able to charge penalties and interest on codes liens because now forgiving them becomes an incentive for the property owner if that's available. One of the other things we did recently the council did was to I take advantage of a state law which allows us to sell surplus property that's been through a tax sale in which we have acquired as a result of the tax sale. We take a property tax sale, there's a minimum bid based on the total amount of city and county taxes, penalties and interest due. If nobody bids a dollar more than that, we end up with the property. Once we have it, and once the one-year redemption period, which is a stupidly long redemption period, passes, then we... Um, can now sell that property for less than the taxes owed. It gives the city more flexibility uh, with regard to that. It may be that that property has to be underwater in order for us to forgive the taxes. I'm not sure, but that's not hard to prove, and especially with vacant lots, because a lot of times vacant lots, if it's got six or seven thousand dollars worth of taxes on it. Nobody's going to buy it in tax sale, and then we've got it, but we, until now, we haven't been able to sell it unless we collected those taxes. So now we have that flexibility. There's also a whole section on fostering sustainable reuse of abandoned properties. I just want to point out a couple of things. One thing that Malik does in this book is to emphasize the importance of knowing the markets. And and frankly, I think this is an area where we could do some improvement. Um, There are only so many hours in the day. But understanding the market for residential property is key to determining whether or not, for example, you tear a house down. In a place like Detroit, it's almost a no-brainer if you've got a blighted house. The houses get torn down because there is absolutely no market for that house, even if it's rehabbed. In our case, we go the other way. We tend to not tear down houses that we have the right to tear down as long as there's hope for it to be rehabbed. But understanding the market is important. He uh, says, for example, it's sort of a, a multi level strategy of understanding the total context in which that house sits in order to determine what the reuse is. He talks about, you know, government being able to bridge the market gap in order to get a house back into shape. He also says that just finding a reuse for an abandoned property is not necessarily the first thing you look at. You look at scale. Um, In places like Detroit, you've got huge areas that are vacant that used to have houses on them that do no longer have houses. So in some places, you're talking urban farming, urban meadows or uh, assembling parcels and having larger-scale residential development. He says scale and character come into play actually before you worry about use, and he points out quality matters. How any community seriously attempting to become more attractive to home buyers with the ability to choose where they live should make sure that all new development, rehab, and reuse projects meet the highest standards of planning, design, and construction. While cities have little control over larger regional forces, back to William's point, they can control the quality of what takes place within the city. By following simple principles of good planning and design, cities can use design quality as a means to improve the city's quality of life and competitive within the region uh, how well a project is planned and designed whether it is a single house or a new development with hundreds of units will determine in large part whether it enhances the quality of the neighborhood and fosters its regeneration or merely perpetuates an unsatisfactory status quo. Um, One of the tools we have in Knoxville is infill housing overlay. So there are some neighborhoods that have infill overlay where if you build a house you've got to formed to certain standards within that neighborhood. Historic overlay is even more strict, but those are some of the tools that that can be used to ensure that quality infill housing. So in conclusion, there are like a dozen principles that Allen and the Center for Community Progress emphasize, uh, and I'll just read a couple of them. Vacant and abandoned property issues are complicated and require complex, multifaceted strategies there is no silver bullet all of these different tools are necessary and that's what we talk about adding to our toolbox so that we can address a particular problem that might not have been addressed without this newest tool so looking at the total uh, fabric of the things that are available to us codes enforcement taking a property by eminent domain and so forth are are important A systematic approach is needed to address the forces driving abandonment and reuse of properties. All levels of government can and should play a strong role in addressing vacant property issues. Taking responsibility for the future of a community means being willing to take responsibility for properties. That gets back to the importance of neighborhoods. One of the best things and worst things that ever happened to the city of Knoxville was 311. Because now you can pick up the phone and call 311 and say, there's a property down the street from me that's blah, blah, blah. Uh, the problem is that says, let the city do it. The city responsible for this. And what we are trying to do and have been successful in doing with several neighborhood organizations, not so much because of us, but because of the spirit of the community leaders, is to work with neighborhood leaders for neighborhood organizations to take responsibility for what's happening in their neighborhood. Not that they're They're to blame for it, but that um, this is an issue that they need to be involved in solving. They are the ones on the ground. They are the ones who see something happening every day. And we are working on a pilot project to bring neighborhoods into helping do the research. We don't have near the manpower or one manpower to do it all so that we can basically get a feel from an individual neighborhood organization, where are the problems and what's the history on these houses? Every different blighted property, whether it's commercial, residential, or industrial, has a story and you've got to understand that background in order to be able to solve the problem. So, I think the the main thing to take away, if you are in a neighborhood uh, or in a neighborhood organization that's involved with blighted property, I encourage you to invest in this. And plug in somewhere to the total community effort to solve this problem. We have to operate in terms of of a community partnership. It takes the whole community to address these things and it doesn't happen overnight but we've got a lot of energy and a lot of expertise in this town that together I think we can um, start turning the tide the other way. Well, there's been a lot of investment in Mechanicsville. Becky Wade, who is the community development director for the city now, was the project manager for Hope Six in Mechanicsville. That had a tremendous impact. Uh, took a lot of money, and so um, uh, 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 so some some things have to be solved on a very large scale, like that was, uh, and some things are solved on a property by property, block by block, scale. Was the question?
1: The conditions
0: what are the conditions that come in to, to uh, I- involve eminent domain? Specifically to this issue, in the city we have an anti-blight ordinance that allows the Better Building Board, which is a citizens board appointed by the mayor, but with a lot of power to affect codes enforcement. Uh, it allows that board to first determine and then later certify a property as blighted. There are many built-in steps in this that give the property owner an opportunity to cure the blight. But if after certification the blight is not cured and we are unable to negotiate a purchase of the property for fair market value, then we can turn to our agent in these things, Knoxville Community Development Corporation, KCDC, and they can on our own counsel's order condemn a property I'm sorry, we we have to be careful about the word condemn. We can take that property through eminent domain. And we look at that on a case-by-case basis. The flip side of that or the, the result of that is that those properties go into a community development program called homemakers. Uh, and this addresses another one of Alan Malik's concerns, which is that if the municipality owns property, don't sell it to the highest bidder. Uh, The best example of that in Knoxville right now is South High, where that property got sold to the highest bidder rather than to the bidder who um, could have uh, rehabbed it and turned it into uh, multifamily housing. So now it sits there in South Knoxville, and we've invoked the, the demolition by neglect ordinance on it to try to force the property owner to deal with it what we do in community development with the homemakers program is that once we get those blighted properties a person on our staff named Kathy Ellis does a tremendous job in preparing the house to be sold that may mean getting a tarp on it It certainly means making sure it's boarded it means uh, cleaning it out so it could be shown in one case recently required shoring up a floor so that people could actually walk through the house Uh, that house has now been sold by the way and and is going to be rehabbed but when we sell a house through homemakers, we sell it with conditions, and that's one of the things Alan talks about. The buyer has to present a plan for that, how that house is uh, going to be rehabbed, and if they don't do it within a certain amount of time, we can take it back. Gene? One
1: of the best programs I've seen over the years was uh, in Baltimore when they started out <coughs> rehabbing buildings for housing, and then they realized that They lost the support commercial that was so essential to create viable neighborhoods in some of these areas that had been so decimated by urban renewal. And so they started applying it to commercial as well. So if they needed a grocery store and a property was rehabbed, the property owner who took advantage of the rehab grants and incentives then had two years. To make that into an operational uh, grocery store, if that was the right, case, right, right. And I just I think that that expresses an understanding of how neighborhoods work. I mean, right. but, you know, that there is an essential need for certain support, and we've seen that in the downtown here. The way that we had to get our downtown uh, homeowner level up to a certain point before we created a market where it became viable to have a grocery store. Right, right. But I think if we had a program like Baltimore had many years ago, that we might have been able to accelerate that.
0: Well, we do do that kind of stuff, actually. I mean, uh, both Bob Wetzel and Becky Wade have been involved in the Downtown North projects. Community Development has done the facade grants, Broadway and Central and then up Central through Happy Holler to provide incentives, grants, to businesses to rehab the outside of their businesses. They have to put in a certain amount of money. That money that we've spent has leveraged more than that investment in private investment and created jobs. Bob has been working on infrastructure improvements up through North Central, which can be a very key component to the surrounding neighborhoods when you're doing that kind of infrastructure improvement. And then community development was involved in providing a bridge loan for the uh, Three Rivers Market. In a lot of ways, I mean, I've never talked to Jackie Arthur about this, but the fact that Three Rivers Market located there at Baxter and Central, some of the things that factored into their decision had to have been the improvements that were occurring in that area. Some because of the market, but some because of the investment that the city and community development made in the facades, and in the infrastructure. So we're actually doing some pretty good things and doing some pretty good things right. It's just, I mean, we're limited by, by money. I mean, we, we, there are a lot of areas in Knoxville where we could do that. The, why, why downtown north? Because the strategy for at least going back to uh, Haslam's first administration and probably before is to work on a vibrant downtown. Uh, that if you don't have a vibrant downtown, it's really difficult to build out and to have a, a core neighborhoods. And so now what you're seeing with the Downtown North Project and now with the Magnolia Warehouse Redevelopment District is to start building, as Bob says, in concentric circles out from downtown. It's not helping the people at Linden and North Harrison yet, but eventually it will because we're building on that, the strength of that core. So, I, th- I think we are doing it. It's interesting. Malik talks about a lot of cities and a lot of chambers of commerce really emphasize recruiting industry and recruiting commercial enterprises and marketing ourselves to those two groups, uh, new businesses. He says we should put equal emphasis on marketing our neighborhoods because uh, the two go hand in hand. And I think that's what you're talking about
1: things that were very positive. They ran training sessions for landlords and potential landlords and that seemed to be very effective. I mean, the the legal responsibilities they had, how to pick uh, tenants,
0: things like this. We actually have landlord training down as one of our to-dos. And um, it's just a matter of money and staff but it's certainly uh, a worthy thing, particularly because if we get to the point where we want to get something passed in the state legislature for us to be able to regulate commercial residential property, uh, it will be very helpful for us to have gone through this step uh, because we really, I mean, you know, having affordable rental housing is an important aspect of having a, a vibrant community. and. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I mean, there 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 is an apartment council in Knoxville. They do have a training program, but I suspect that it's it's not for the smaller landlords who are particularly in the single family and duplex market. So you're right. It's a, it would be a great thing to be able to pull off. Anybody else? Well, thanks everybody. Appreciate your coming, and uh, I hope it was useful. Thank you for listening to Brown Bag Green Book, a lunchtime series of book discussions about environmental sustainability. To hear other podcasts, please visit www.knoxlib.org.